you up um, for our second Bible reading, and then Trevor is going to come and preach to us. So our second reading this evening comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. To the church in Pergamum, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antiphus, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Um, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the scripture says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. Thank you, Matthew. Um, sorry, I didn't do that. I had no idea what happened. There, and there's two other mics here, maybe. Would that have anything to do with it? No, whatever. Okay. All right, they're both off. Anyway, it's good to see you. My name is Trevor. If we haven't met before, I work here as one of the ministers. It's really good to see you here, and I'm so pleased that the building is warm. Uh, we're normally criticized for it being cold. Um, the thing about it being cold, you will stay awake during the talk. Uh, when it's warm, you might be tempted to fall asleep. Um, if not, I, if you are tempted to fall asleep, I will call you out and make you stand up, that sort of thing. But anyway, that's, that's just a little threat to kind of keep you all awake. So we're in, <laughs> we're in this book of Revelation, and what an incredible book that it is. And I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're getting stuck into it. I hope you're getting stuck into it on Sunday evenings. I hope you're getting stuck, in, stuck into it privately, personally. I hope you're having a good read at it at home, on the train, on the bus, wherever it is. I hope you're getting it into your head. What an incredible book that it is, because it tells us about our future, and it describes our present. And we're told about what happened in the past to Christians who are dotted around what we would call today Turkey, uh, this modern Turkey. Uh, they're dotted around in seven different churches, uh, and it's kind of a following the mail route. Um, so there's seven letters here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There are seven. And it goes kind of from the start, it goes around in a circle, it's a mail route, and it ends up in Laodicea. It begins in Ephesus, and here we are in the third one, Pergamum. Have you ever heard of Pergamum? Well, if you've never been to Pergamum, I'm going to bring you to Pergamum tonight. Why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you love us, that you love us so much that you've given us Jesus, that he died for our sins, that we can know eternal life. Father, we thank you for what he has said, his word. Lord, we thank you for his word. We thank you for what was revealed to John that we read now. We praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the next couple of days, there's going to be a new prime minister. I don't know what you thought of Liz Truss. No comment. 
But who are you going to go for, Rishi or Boris? Hands up for, no, no, we'll not do that. <laughs> the thing is, you can't go for both of them. You cannot go for both of them. You can't go for a bit of Boris, and you can't go for a bit of Rishi. You might like a bit of Rishi because he seems to know about figures. And you can't go, you might want to go for Boris because he is, let's face it, the vote winner. I'm not expressing an opinion, but our last names, Boris and I, we share our last name, Johnson. That's all I'm saying. So who are you going to, who are you going to go for, Rishi or Boris? You cannot, you cannot go for both of them. This is the thing about being a Christian. You cannot go for Jesus and someone else. You cannot go for Jesus and some other God. You cannot go for Jesus and some other way to live. You cannot, it's entirely binary, the choice. It's either Jesus or nothing. That, that's kind of hard for us to grasp because people like to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. People like to kind of choose one thing and then after a while, well, having been committed to that one thing, we'll choose another thing in addition to that first thing. Being a Christian cuts against the grain because it's exclusive, entirely exclusive. You cannot have Jesus and something else. The people in Pergamum were those who attempted to have Jesus and something else. That's what's going on in Pergamum. I know you've never been there, I guess. Maybe some of you have. I know um, that it's quite hard to grasp what is going on here. And the way the book of Revelation is written, it's written in a kind of a code language. But the code is not that difficult. What you have to do is just a bit of thinking. What you have to do is perhaps some research but all the answers are there. All the answers are in the Bible. And what this, particularly this letter to Pergamum, it reuses some of the ideas and concepts of the Old Testament. And that Old Testament we had, read, uh, we had read earlier on from Numbers chapter, well, chapter 25, which is the middle of chapter 24 and 26, and then a wee bit of so on and so forth. That Old Testament reading is reused here, recycled here in Revelation. So the code is all there. The code is all explained. Just in case you're wondering, we have the key to unlock the book of Revelation with the rest of the Bible. That's, so don't be scared of the book of Revelation. Don't be threatened by it. It is not difficult, really, to grasp, but you have to do just a little bit of thinking. So where is the compromise in Pergamum? And how does Jesus see it? Chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is right in the middle of these churches, these seven churches. And we know that in, seven, the, the, in the book of Revelation, the number seven is hugely significant. It means perfection, completeness. So we've got seven churches. So if you want to know what Jesus really thinks of the churches in the world today, I would argue, just check out these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Because you've got absolutely everything. In the seven churches, and we're coming to the middle point in the seven churches, and what you find is letter number one is a bit of a standalone letter. Number seven is a bit also of a standalone letter. But then number two, three, four, five, 
six have repeated themes. And you saw what I was doing there with my hand. Two, three, four, five, and six. And you notice this next week. The things are really hotting up. In terms of some of the things that are said to the Church of Pergamum, there's plus, plus, plus in terms of the strength and the power and the criticism, the critique. It's plus, plus, plus. There's no criticism of the number two church. That is the church at Smyrna. Nor is there no criticism of the church at number six, number six church, Philadelphia. As you, as you go to three, there's a bit more criticism. Then four, the height of criticism. Then five, some criticism. And then six, no criticism. That church two, that church six in Revelation chapter two and three, they're the churches facing immediate suffering. Or suffering is in their immediate prospect. So Jesus speaks to them in a loving, caring, compassionate way. There's no rebuke in church number two, church number six. Jesus speaks lovingly, compassionately to church number three and church number five. But there is rebuke. Then church number four, there's a severe, severe rebuke. That's the way these letters work. Three bills on two, four bills on three. And then it kind of dissipates a bit until we get to church number six. That's the church at Philadelphia. So uh, there's a lot going on here, but I think it's challenging, hugely challenging. Because it speaks to my natural inclination to be a compromiser. My natural inclination to to have a wee bit of rishi. I mean, his economic policies appear to be good. You may want to pick that up in conversation afterwards. And (laughs) someone's just put up their hand at the back. Rishi, a wee bit of rishi. You know, safe pair of hands sort of thing. And a wee bit of Boris, a bit of excitement. A bit of, you just know, what's he going to do next? What's he going to say next? I'd love a wee bit of that. This number four, this church at Pergamum speaks to my natural inclination to be a bit of a compromiser, to be a bit of a both and. And does that work as far as Jesus is concerned? Well, no. So what do we have going on here in Pergamon? Well, we've got the church that appears to be faithful. The church that appears to be loyal to Jesus. The church that appears to have made a very definite decision to follow Jesus. The individuals in it are standing for Jesus. So they've chosen Boris, if you see what I mean. But they've also chosen Rishi. And that is deadly. Let's have a look. Verse 12. To the angel of the church of Pergamum. That's, I would argue, the leader. This is addressed to the leader. The leader then speaks to the church with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. To the angel of the church of Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. As we've noted before, these introductions, how Jesus self-identifies, how Jesus introduces himself is hugely significant, but it's because it's utterly relevant to what follows in the address. 
And what's significant about the sharp two-edged sword? Well, it's to do with Jesus' mouth. Jesus' tongue. It also speaks here of Jesus' coming in judgment. The sharp two-edged sword was what, if you were going into battle, was what your front line of soldiers had. That's why the Roman army was feared. The Romans are coming. What a nightmare. Because you know the first soldiers you meet, they will hack you to pieces. Because they've got these powerful, double-edged, two-edged swords. You'll know this, of course, if you've ever played kind of toy soldier, or not, if you ever pretended you're a soldier with a, a sword and all that kind of thing. I, I did that. I didn't like a long time ago. I did that. Uh, I guess some of the guys here did that. The most effective kind of sword, and I've thought about this, don't judge me, I've thought about this, the most effective type of sword is a double-edged sword. A single-edged sword will only cut if, it, if you get the right way. It's got it's to pierce this way if the blade is this side, the sharp blade is this side. You've got a double effectiveness if both sides are equally as sharp. That's why the Roman soldiers, the, the, the army, were feared because the first row, you'd be hacked to pieces because they'd come in swinging, swinging digs all around the place with this sword that no matter which way they hit, it was effective, efficient, dangerous, deadly. And who has the sharp two-edged sword? And what is described as the sharp two-edged sword? Well, it's not a, an implement. It's his words, Jesus' words. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This would not have been difficult for those who are living in Pergamon to know, oh, wow, <laughs> Jesus means business. Jesus is pretty serious here. Jesus' words will cut. Jesus is to be feared. He's the front row of the army coming in, about to conquer. So what does he say? Well, the pattern, as we've talked about before, in these letters has a kind of, it, it follows this pattern. There's a, there's a kind of a, an introduction. Jesus introduced himself, the first line of each of these letters. Then there's a compliment, a pointing out of the strength of the particular church. Then there's a criticism order, Jesus says, but I have this against you kind of criticism. And then there's here is how to remedy it and do remedy it because I am speaking, the Spirit is speaking. You've got to listen up when the Spirit of God speaks. Because there are consequences if you don't. So where's the commendation here? Where's the strength at the church of Pergamum? Well, like the previous church, the church of Smyrna, and this is how, kind of, you know, I was just doing my pyramid thing there. Building upon church number two, we have in church number three, the strength of the church. And the strength is that they're standing for Jesus. They're withstanding the world around them. And the world around them is pretty hot and heavy against them. 
Listen to how Jesus speaks to them. And of course we know verse number three, or sorry, verse number 13. Of course we know that Jesus is there. Of course we know that Jesus is familiar, that he's not speaking out of ignorance. Of course we know that. Chapter one has told us that, that Jesus is in the middle of the churches. Well, here we have verse 13 of chapter two. Jesus says, I know where you live. Now, whenever you hear someone say that to you, you kind of think, oh, okay, they know where my front door is. They may come around to it. They may, they may get a rap sometime. That's a, okay. But, but listen, listen to the words of compassion and knowledge. I know where you live. He is not ignorant of their, well, what is it? Plight. Because Satan lives there. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan, we know who Satan is, don't we? We're introduced to him in chapter 3 of the whole of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. He's the great opposer of God. He's the great enemy of God. He's the great one to undercut God. He's the great one to deny God's word, to cause doubt. Do you believe that Satan exists? Well, Jesus does. The people in Pergamum do because they can see that he's there. I know where you dwell, Jesus says, where Satan's throne is. Satan is so great, so powerful, so influential that he has a throne there, a seat there in Pergamum. That he is influential and busy in Pergamum. Why does it say this? Well, Pergamum was the first place in terms of the Roman Empire where there was emperor worship, Caesar worship, where Caesar was described as both Lord and Savior. And you had to bow the knee to Caesar. You had to worship the Caesar. There was a hill behind the city of Pergamum. And very visually, on the way up that hill, there were various temples to other various gods. At the top of that hill, there was the temple to Zeus. And if you know anything from GCSE, classical civilization, Zeus was the chief god, the boss god. And Pergamum had, at the very pinnacle of that hill, the Zeus temple. There were various temples dotted across the city, various temples dotted up the hill, and you, in order to get to the Zeus, you would have passed the other various gods and their temples, and there would have been worship of those gods. There would have been worship and sacrifice towards those gods. But at the very top of the hill was Zeus. So very visually, the Pergamese Christians would have known what Jesus is talking about here. There's a great enemy of Jesus living in that city. There's a great enemy who demands obedience. Demands obedience so much so, well, let's have a look. So much so people are dying. 
I know where you dwell, verse 13, where Satan's throne is. And here we have the commendation. It's reassuring, isn't it, that Jesus knows where you're living? But here we have the commendation. Yet, even though Satan is living right there in your face all the time, opposing you and denying you, you hold fast my name. You do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Do you see how that verse works? Verse number 13. You've got Satan dwelling at the start of it, Satan dwelling at the end of it. Satan has his throne. Satan has his home. I'm a poet, and I know it. Oh, there we go. Slow cry tonight. You hold fast my name, you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. We have a real life, living, actually dead example of this great opposition. Who was Antipas? Well, we don't know who Antipas was. We have no idea who he was. We're not told anything else. His name could mean against everything. Anti, pass. Greek, anti, against, pass, meaning all, against, against all. It could mean that. But we don't know. We just don't know. But the one thing we do know about is that the Christians at Pergamon in the church would have mourned and buried their friend Antipas because Antipas held strong to the name of Jesus. It was only Boris for Antipas. Nothing else, just Boris. Nothing else, no one else, just Jesus. And he refused, refused to say the Caesar is Lord. There was no bowing down in front of Caesar. There was no sacrificing to Caesar, even though Caesar was putting pressure on everyone to worship him. Emperor worship, Caesar worship. That's why it was dangerous to say, Jesus is Lord. How could there be another Lord other than Caesar? But Antipas said, no, no, Jesus is Lord. You, Jesus says, verse 13, you did not deny my faith. What does that mean? Well, my faith is the faith of the gospel, the trust in the gospel, the very thing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that declares that he is Lord. You did not deny my faith. Now, whenever you read what Jesus says, you know those stark words of Jesus? If you deny me here when you're alive, I will deny you then whenever you're dead. You cannot live in a kind of a, a both-and world as far as Jesus is concerned. You cannot do that. Maybe you're doing that. Maybe you're living like that. The remarkable thing is, the remarkable thing is, these guys in Pergamum were standing firm. They were resisting Satan. They were saying, no, we're going to hold firm. Absolutely no compromise for us publicly. Yet, there was an attempt at riding two horses, because privately, 
internally. Whilst there's this great reputation for resisting, and they've got this figure called Antipas, you've got going on in the hearts and lives of the people in the church. Complete compromise. Complete both andism. Whenever you move into the next church, you get it most fully. But let's have a look at this church, Pergamum. But, verse 14, I have a few things against you, Jesus says. Your school reports, remember when the school reports came in? Oh, he's really good at tying his tie. Really good at writing his name. Really good at polishing his shoes. But, so I'm just speaking about my school report. But, homework doesn't come in in time. Spellings are mostly wrong. Maths, well, let's not talk about that. That was my school report, by the way. Here we have Jesus giving the school report for the Church of Pergamon. I have a few things against you. And what is it? Externally, you look good. Externally, you're resisting Satan. Even though right up on that hill there, there's a, a, a temple, a, a temple towards Zeus, the, the pagan gods. You've got all that going. But you have some there, look at verse 14, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, if you want to find out about that, you've got to research in, in numbers, and you've got to read from chapter 22 to 24, a wee bit of chapter 25, and then jump on into chapter 31 in the book of Numbers. You get the full picture then. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, why is that significant? What did Balaam do? Well, Balaam was shown up, wasn't he, whenever even his donkey knew more about the true and the living God than he did. And hence that story that we read from Numbers chapter 23. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Particularly what about Balaam? About the teaching of Balaam? Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that is, God's people, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So you've got these guys who are standing firm, who are withstanding Satan and all the pressure that Satan is placing upon them, all the pressure for compromise. They were saying no, but they're saying yes to false teaching. They're embracing it internally, privately, when the doors are closed. And what particularly? Well, to eat food sacrificed to idols. That was participate. That wasn't a neutral thing to do. That wasn't an innocent thing to do. Because they would have known to do that meant worshipping those idols. They've got all this thing going on externally. We're withstanding Satan. We're strong, so on and so forth. But yet, privately, they're enjoying a good feed. Possibly in some of the temples. On the way up to that hill that was behind the city of Pergamum. 
there's a couple of good restaurants there in the temple. But every single one of those meals would have been dedicated to the gods, sacrificed to the gods, and you would have been participating in the worship of other gods, false gods, gods who don't exist, gods who are simply figments of the imagination that are idols. So they may eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual morality. That was the teaching in the Old Testament from Balaam, that came from Balaam, that compromised God's people because they participated in this eating of the sacrificial eating. And see what else is involved? Sexual immorality. So all of this positive outward stuff is entirely undermined and in fact denied by this compromise. They haven't a wee bit of Boris and a wee bit of Rishi. They hadn't really understood the exclusive demands of Jesus, the singularly exclusive demands of Jesus. Only me. They were believing wrong things. Now, you may say, well, that's just what you believe. I mean, doctrine is important today. The things that we believe, as long as you're nice, as long as you're loving, as long as, as, long as you're compassionate and gentle and soft, those are the things, those are the qualities you should have. Non-judgmental. We, we don't want to be judgmental. Well, Jesus says that if you believe wrong things, you worship a false god. If you believe wrong things, you worship a false god, and that will lead you to live in a corrupted way. See, what you believe and how you behave are intimately connected. And notice how the belief is expressed in a particular way. Sexual immorality, that is sex outside of marriage. That is sex outside of two gendered, permanent, committed, long-term, exclusive marriage. The Bible is so clear. It's just kind of, you'll summarize it as immorality, sexual immorality. There's absolutely no compromise in Jesus or in the New Testament about this at all. The only context for those kinds of physical expression is marriage. You've got the false doctrine leading to false living. You've got the idolatry and how is it expressed physically in immorality. But of course, you know, that's all happening in the bedroom or in the restaurant and no one knows about it. Well, Jesus knows about it. I have a friend. I wouldn't call him a friend now, really. A former friend. And he's the kind of guy who he and I would have stood together in different issues and different things. Strongly together. Withstanding we'd say, kind of worship of Satan, following Satan. We would have stood together, linked arms in various causes and various things. And it was great. Long-term friend, six, seven years, we would have done this kind of stuff, you know, speaking out against and speaking loudly and 
where no one else would have any kind of doubt as to what we believed and so on and so forth and saying, no, you're wrong and so on and so forth. And like, no, you can't go that way. Don't go. To that was all externally. Internally, my friend was engaging in stuff that was completely contrary to what publicly and externally he was standing for. And interestingly, it was in this category of sexual morality. He was loud and big and in charge and front page of the newspaper and letters to the newspaper and all that kind of thing. This is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. You know, about just the drift in society, speaking about abortion, same-sex marriage, all that kind of thing. Speaking, you know, really clear on those fronts. But then, privately, was it hypocritical? Yeah. More seriously, it was living, speaking one way, but thinking, living privately another way. Entirely compromised. Guy was a minister. Church was a ministry. Dog collar and all that kind of thing. So you've got the false teaching of Balaam from the Old Testament with the consequences of tripping up the sons of Israel, the children of Israel, who practiced sexual morality and who fell. You've also some, verse number 15, you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, who are they? Well, we really don't know much. They've already been referenced in one of the earlier letters. You see it in chapter 2, verse number, well, what is it? Verse number 9, verse number 8, where the church at Ephesus disliked the Nicolaitans. Are they an entirely different group teaching an entirely different thing? Well, no. I think they're the similar same, not the same necessarily, but similar kind of thing that they're teaching and they're causing people to trip up. So you have the Nicolaitans, you've got these Balaamites, you've got these various factions within the church. One's Nicolaitan, another's a Balaamite, but they are essentially the same thing. Denying Christ. And that being seen in their behavior, or not so much seen, hidden, privately. But Jesus sees it. Maybe you're living like that. Maybe when no one else is looking, watching, that's going on for you. You'll be public and hand up in the air and You'll be jumping up and down if something's said or something's done and it'll pick a cause, but then privately, something else going on. Somehow you believe that that kind of living in A direction, capital A direction, and living also in B direction, it's okay. You can be plural. I mean, everyone loves a pluralistic society. So the Balaamites the Nicolaitans, they're influencing the church at Pergamum. There's a great reputation. You're standing against Satan. You're withstanding the demands to call Caesar Lord and all of the spiritual input and impact of that worship, that kind of worship. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? Is all lost for the church? 
of Pergamum? Well, no, Jesus invites him to listen. To listen. He says, repent, first of all, verse 16. If not, look at this, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. If you want to hear God speak, here's God speaking right now. If you want to hear the Spirit's voice, do we have to close our eyes and turn the lights out and get some music going? Well, no. Open your eyes. Push open your ears and just read these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what does he say? Jesus is coming. Jesus will defeat Satan. Jesus will defeat the enemy. Jesus will come in judgment. It will happen. There is no doubt that it will happen. It will happen. I will come to you soon and war against them. War against them who deny Jesus. Who are living in a compromised faith. Jesus will deal with them. At the end of chapter 1, Jesus says, I'm in the midst of the lampstands, the churches. At the end of these seven letters, Jesus talks about removing the lampstand of those churches. Remarkably, in those areas, it's virtually unreached people groups in those areas. Virtually. No churches, no witness. How does Jesus speak to you if you want to remain faithful? Well, if you're living in this compromised state, we've got a bit of column A and a bit of column B, a bit of column A worship and a bit of column B worship. Jesus says, repent. And he promises, after you've repented, he promises that he will give you some, if you have a look at verse 17, there is a reward. There is an overcoming a reward. You see this? To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Just have to jump back into the Old Testament for that. What's the manna? It's the food that God gave the children of Israel as they were in the wilderness. Quail and manna. Bread. And this came from heaven. This was God's provision for his people. The hidden manna. This is the unseen manna. Probably referencing the great banquet feast of the Supper of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb. So, hidden manna, and you get a white stone. What does that mean? Well, a white stone was if you, it's opposite really to a black stone. You know what a black stone is? It's a vote against. A white stone is a vote for. A white stone is a kind of a, a ticket. In fact, it was a white ticket if you wanted to get in. I mean, there are two ways of entering the auditorium or the Colosseum, shall we say. One is you're, you're dragged there and thrown in and being devoured by the lions, where you're the, the subject of the audience kind of interest. Or you can go in and present a ticket, a white stone ticket, and you're in the audience. You're not kind of one of the playthings of the lions. A hidden manna, 
food, provision, the, the food at the eternal banquet of the Lamb, get a white stone, entrance, and you get a new name, which is written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus is the one who's been from the Old Testament foretold in Isaiah that there's this new thing happening, this new covenant, and Jesus receives this new name, which means absolute security for the person who overcomes, for the person who perseveres, for the person who says no compromise. I, I, I'm going to withstand all of that stuff, and I'm going to withstand personally, internally, privately. I will withstand all of that false teaching that leads me away from Jesus. I'm going to withstand all of that. I'm going to withstand all of that false teaching that leads me to sexual morality, for example, and that kind of behavior. I'm going to withstand all of that, and I'm going to, I'm going to, there's a promise for the one who overcomes, for the one who continues this provision, this sumptuous banquet, this access into heaven forever, this rightful access into heaven forever, and this identification with Jesus' own new name that will be yours too. You can't have a column A and a column B as far as Jesus is concerned. If Jesus Lord, or do you think Jesus and Caesar, well, they can share the central place in my life. The dangerous thing is that perhaps some in Pergamum thought all was fine, thought that all was fine and dandy. That was the danger for them. And without Jesus' sword coming into their life, cutting away all the rubbish and speaking clearly to them, they wouldn't have what he promises in verse 17. What about you this evening? What's going on? Deep down inside, you can answer that. I can't either, really. What's going on inside? You're withstanding publicly. You're with the church group, withstanding all of that stuff. You've got a reputation, but yet deep down inside, it's not there. All sorts of things. You're engaging in all sorts of things where it's just a wee bit of idolatry. Food sacrificed idols, just a wee bit of immorality. Is that, is that going on? Well, hear Jesus' words. Hear Jesus' invitation. Hear Jesus' promise. Verse 16, therefore, repent. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that in the book of Revelation, <coughs> that you promise your people food, that you promise your people a sumptuous banquet that lasts eternally. In contrast to those who will starve and thirst eternally. We, we praise you that Jesus is Lord. We pray that we would not live in a compromised way, that we would not live in a dishonest way, that we would not live in a way where externally we're standing for causes, 
see it internally, privately. We are believing and trusting other gods, falling away, denying Jesus. Father, thank you for the clarity of this letter to Pergamum. We pray that we would repent and we praise you that there is this great promised future for all those who overcome that will be given heavenly food. They will eat of the lamb that our identity it will be so bound into his that we will have a new name which only Christ knows. pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.